0: Next thing, I'm on a stretcher getting carried across this field. And then, boom, got hit by another one. Got blown off the stretcher. So I got no flown, flown in the air. Yeah, flown in the air. Jesus Christ. And the, the medic. The medic had stood on another one. Um
1: Episode 9 of the Aim, High and Achieve podcast. Welcome. Today our guest is Mr Stephen Handley. He is a former British Army serviceman. He's served in Afghanistan and his career was abruptly ended. We're going to hear about that today. Uh, also about his other athletic achievements which are pretty amazing. Uh, I recently caught up with Stephen. He was invited to give a talk to Rugby League Norway's youth programme where he gave a talk for an hour or so to our youth players on mental fortitude physical uh, resilience conditioning this kind of thing it was a great talk uh, we spoke a little bit after subsequently invited him to talk and tell his story on here so stephen it's great to catch up with you thanks for taking the time mate i appreciate it
0: yeah yeah likewise thanks for last time um at yeah. the rugby camp and it's good to see you doing other bits and keeping yourself busy as well. It's always nice to see people having little side projects and everything else. So.
1: Yeah, definitely. We, we obviously met uh, yeah, a few weeks ago at a youth rugby camp where uh, you were invited by Rugby League Norway to come and, and, and give a talk to the, the youth players. Um, I don't know how many of them were listening. I certainly was. I think, uh, <laughs> I, I think they'd had a very long day training, but you, you gave a great talk for an hour. Um, so, you're living in Kristiansand, which is about a six-hour drive south of me. My my sort of first question is, when, when you signed up all those years ago to, to join up with the British Army, did you ever think that that decision would lead you to where you are now in your life?
0: Uh, no. But no, definitely not. I mean, Norway wasn't even on my radar, really, to be honest with you. I think like a lot of people when i thought of norway i just thought of cold and dark and everything else and where i'm living now is actually quite a lot different to that so i was quite surprised mm. when i first arrived here and that was six going on seven years now and i'm still here so you know i must be enjoying it so yeah, yeah.
1: what um, age did you join the army at
0: i joined the army i was 18 going on 19 i think
1: what was the decision behind that because for for i remember when I was sort of 14 or 15 for for a few fleeting moments I, I was thinking about the army uh, I ended up going to college and I, I never sort of went through it but I did have going to the army cadets and this kind of thing but what 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 was it for you that led you into the army at that age
0: i think from quite a young age I mean I was always active and i always liked being outdoors and that I mean i i did quite well academically i was i was fine at it but i didn't really i wasn't passionate about it i didn't enjoy it if i could choose i'd always be outside running around or climbing so then i immediately i was looking at active jobs so the typical fire service military that was you know the the stereotypical options you kind of get given and get talked about i think i think it has a lot to say about where you grow up and who you know around you you always you're only exposed to the jobs you know and see, right? So mm-hmm. I think that was um, that was a big factor, I guess. And then I, uh, of course, 9-11 and stuff happened while I was in high school. So that probably had a an indirect effect and, and planted it in, into my mind even more. Um, but I didn't go straight into the army, obviously I was 18, 19. So when I left school, I knew that I should, or I, I, I was told that I should get a trade uh, so I ended up doing car, me- car mechanics I did that for a few years, I did an apprenticeship um, and I did once I finished that I did a few other bits and bobs uh, worked in coffee shops and remortgaging houses, working for a soliciting firm and all sorts of different stuff and the, the coffee shop I actually enjoyed it was quite social, quite chilled and working in the call centre doing the house remortgages that really reconfirmed my ideas of the. Uh, I didn't want to have like an office job or work in that kind of environment because I didn't enjoy it at all. It wasn't challenging. It was very, it was very easy and I got nothing from it and found myself very complacent, very quick. So,
1: yeah, I mean, I, was... mean, I, 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 sorry to, sorry to interrupt you, but I, I remember no, I I I had a stint in an office in, uh, doing some pension administration and, uh, Yeah, it's hell on earth. I don't know how anybody six, nine to five in an office processing anything. And I'm I'm sure
0: every office is different, I'm sure. I'm sure there's some good ones. But again, the the environment and the place I was in, it was very just gossipy and all the things, the stereotypical things you think of when you think of an office. It was that, Um, gossiping at the coffee machine and all that (laughs) stuff. So no, that was it. And I just decided okay, I'm going to look into the fire service originally. And at the time they were going through redundancies and I basically got the feedback that they weren't really taking on. And even if they were, they prefer people that are early 20s with a bit of life experience. Um, so I'd spoken to a, a career advisor related to the, the fire service. And so then I sort of thought, okay, well, then it's the military. And um, and I, 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 I even then I thought, okay, I'll do the military for five, six years, maybe get out and join the fire service. Then I'll be early twenties and I will have that life experience, you know, and some hopefully from the military. And I very much bought into all that stuff you see in the adverts and the TV with your adventure stuff and the survival stuff and all that. And I very much wanted to be that. I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to be that person. Hmm. So, um, so that was Um, it for me. So, So I did so so when you get
1: uh when you get the kind of you so you you you're you're in the army and you and as as i'm imagining it you're doing a lot of drills and a lot of kind of uh base work in the uk and things when you when you get the call and eventually you went you went to afghanistan and and correct me if there was more tours i don't know uh you you get the call to go to somewhere like afghanistan How how is the the sort of natural reaction to that going into the theater of war, you know, like this is like the real deal. Now you're going into it. How how did you sort of process that moment when you, when you deployed?
0: For me, it was exciting and good. Um, I think I joined at a time where there was, of course, Iraq before Afghanistan. Iraq was kind of the, the era where I joined, but then of course I had a year of sort of training. So, by the time I got through, Iraq was over, Afghanistan. Um, so you, you, I joined at a time where the military was active. So you you join expecting it and in mm. some to some degree wanting it. Really, that's why you're joining. So for me, there was definitely uh, excitement and uh, feeling a feeling of being able to go and do what I was trained for. So you so you mm. really you know you're up you're up for it. You're not. At least, I, I, you know, I wasn't scared or nervous or anything like that. You're, you're more curious than anything. I think for me, I was very curious of how I was going to react in situations. You know, you, you you, all have these maybe images in your mind or you place scenarios in your mind. And of course, everybody thinks they're going to react a certain way, but you never know. And you hear so mm-hmm. many stories or I had heard so many stories of people that had done previous tours, because by the time I got into my unit, they'd already done a few tours and obviously Iraqs and a few early Afghans. So, you know, you, you're speaking to people that have been there and done it, and they, they're telling you stories, uh, good and bad. And, you know, you have a lot of expectations. So for me, I was just looking forward to getting involved, really.
1: And I, I suppose the training is that's what it's training you for. It, it's preparing you. It's preparing you for that.
0: So you do you do your training to be a soldier. So that's up in North Yorkshire um, in Catrick and that's your basic training, your, you know, your bread and butter and your, and then your, and then your infantry training on top of that, but that's generic infantry training. And then once you're in your unit and you're, tr- you're going to be going somewhere like Afghanistan, then you'll be doing more training on top of that within your unit specifically for that place, um, the that environment you're going to. And that's where you start working on more specific drills and skills for that combat scenario. Um, so you'll be doing, you know, all your close combat stuff in terms of uh, house clearances, all those bits and bobs, and then you'll be doing all your your mind sweeping. They're not called mines that we look after, but I just say that out of uh, uh, yeah. accessibility to everyone else, and, or not having to explain what an ID is. Everyone calls it a mine yeah. anyway. So yeah, so you you go into more specific details and training for the for your operations.
1: One thing that's always uh, intrigued me in in sort of like the the theater of conflict is are you you kind of working shifts? Would you kind of go and work 12 hours and then come back to the base to the green zone for 12 hours and then or or is it looser than that or is it how how does it kind of work? Because you can't continue if you're in a firefight or you're in a contact. There obviously isn't a time on that. You, you could be out there for 20 hours on something. You know, it, How how is it sort of flow like
0: that? Yeah, so we did, there definitely isn't like a set schedule of 12 hours on and 12 hours off or anything like that. And it really depends on what kind of unit you're in or what your type of operations are. But for us, on the first tour, we were mainly going into areas that had known, there were known Taliban strongholds. So we get dropped into them. And then we would push the, the Taliban out, and then we'd hold a compound, so like an old, uh, either a farm or a house or something, something we could build up. So then we'd build all the corners up with sandbags and build sentry positions to keep watch. And we would stay there, and then that would be our that would be our outpost. Then so we would, it wouldn't be going back to our main base. We would be staying there, and we'd make our own base, build it, um, build it up with sandbags. So we, as you can imagine, you'd be. Some of you will be fighting, some of you will be digging. Um, often you'll push the enemy back enough and they won't come back. They'll have to go and regroup and come up with another plan or even run away. And then we would use those periods to, to, to build our sentry positions. And then you'll have a rotation of who's sleeping and who's watching guard. And then in the day we'd be doing patrols as well, patrolling the area. So you maybe have half of you out on patrol. That would be, so that was a typical, typical sort of stuff I did. And then I also did some like uh, small operations you'd do, where you'd just be a couple of days, or it'd be, or at least it'd be planned for a couple of days. But as you said, sometimes things change, and you might end up being out there for a week. Um, but you would you'd go out and you'd, you'd have a specific job. You know, you, you'd be maybe assisting someone, maybe assisting the Afghan army, or maybe you'd be um, trying to just get into an area and and, and push a small group out. So there's a lot of different ways you can do it, but but for for the most part, so Hel- uh, Helmand, we were, you had Camp Bastion, which was the main base. We flew into there originally. You get your orientation and you do a few more brush ups on skills and drills for a week, a week or so, and then we were out, and then we didn't go back to Bastion then until the end of the the tour, six months, you know. So we were just out living in, in in a compound, um, that we built up. Wow. So, so yeah, definitely, it was definitely hectic, busy. Don't get a lot of sleep.
1: Yeah, and uh, unfortunately, your your, uh, your career on the front line came came to a tragic sort of end. Are you, are you sort of happy to tell us what happened with that?
0: Yeah. So this was on my second tour. I'd done. I did a, a tour in two thousand nine, going in two thousand ten, and that was my first. And that was a busy tour. Really busy, fighting a lot. We were part of uh, something called Operation Mostrak, which was the biggest air assault um, in Afghanistan at the time. And it was, um, yeah, it was a a very big combined effort with all the coalition forces. So Canada, um, America, the Afghan army, all all these. So that was a very, uh, dare I say, fun tour, very busy fighting every day. We came home from that, no problem. And then I, I think a year and a half later, we were due to go back out. Within that time, I moved over to a reconnaissance unit and we went on my second tour and it was very different, very quiet, dare I say boring. Um, we, were, we were quite, we were going on patrols, didn't get into many fights. Uh, we were We were mainly there to be supporting the Afghan army and the Afghan police because they were supposed to be taking more of a, more control of the areas and and taking more of the lead. Um, It was quite a frustrating tour for that reason as well. They're very, they're quite difficult to work with. It was difficult to know if you could trust them all. There's a lot of corruption and a lot of infiltration of, um, you know, people, guys loyal to the Taliban getting into the police and stuff. And there was a lot of incidents of them working alongside our guys uh, and then turning around and shooting them in the back. And stuff so that's
1: almost like modern day guerrillas, yeah. Like, yeah, so it
0: was, it was a very and and even and even without that loyalty to Taliban, there was also just a cultural difference, and and uh, a, yeah, a, it, it was very difficult and a, and a professional, massive professional difference. You know, we'd often go to their compound to collect them to go on patrol, and they would say, oh, I, you know, it's too hot, we're not going out. Um, often felt like they didn't really they didn't really care and of course where they only felt feel like it's your you know it's your country we're here to at least i felt like i was there to help and they didn't seem bothered themselves and it was, it was quite a frustrating time but anyway just like any other day we, we were heading out on patrol and we come into an area that we you know we've been around this area before but of course we always try and take different routes to avoid um, setting patterns and stuff and this time, uh, I ended up in a field and standing on an IED, an improvised explosive device, and it set me up in the air. Uh, the first first moment I realised that I stood on something was, you know, I was in the air looking at the tops of these trees that were alongside the 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 field that we were patrolling. So <laughs> I thought, oh, I'm high. Landed on my shoulder i I remember that very uh, vividly the remember landing on my left shoulder and it being painful and then the dust settling not really my legs initially and then it was just my shoulder that really hurt and then i think as the dust settled i i I come to the realization that i just stood on an idea and i know what that Mm -hmm. does i've seen it happen to people before um we we go over it go over it meticulously over and over in training how to deal with other people to step on them. Um, uh, and of course you talk about how you deal with it for yourself too, but most of the training is dealing with other people that have stepped on it. So I knew that there was going to be leg damage. That's, that's the typical, both legs or one leg or, mm. or, or even you know waist. It can be, it, it, can, mm. it really depends on the size of the, the ID. So I looked down, and sure enough, I, my left leg was missing, and my right leg was—it was there, but it was hanging on by a, just a thread of skin. You know, it was—I could see it was it wasn't going to be saved anyway. And from there, I um, got my tourniquets out, started putting my tourniquets on, doing my doing my drills.
1: You, you were doing this to yourself in that situation.
0: Yeah. So I um. And I actually don't don't remember doing that. I got told this afterwards. Uh, I didn't Jeez. think I did. I actually found I only found out years later, only a couple of years ago. That I found out. I was speaking to the medic that was there, and we were having a conversation over beer. And I can't even remember how it came about, but either way, it came about that I he said about me doing my tourniquets, and I was like, I didn't do my tourniquets. And he said, Yeah, yeah. So how
1: how, how many were in your uh, patrol when when this happened?
0: We were like ten or twelve. Okay. Um, did, anyone else 10, get, 10, did
1: anyone else get caught in it, or was it just you? And then so about,
0: obviously... so, about so we we always try and keep spacing for that mm. reason. So so if either if there's like a, a moth around or something dropped on you, or or of course a blast that it's going to minimise the damage. You know, often you'll see like you see on always see on TV and they're really close together patrolling and that's terrible. Yeah, yeah drills you know it only takes one more around and it's going to take up three or four guys so we we focus on this spacing we call it so luckily it was just me that that got hit on this so by the time I kind of um yeah I think I did my tourniquets and then I the next thought was my you know my 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 crown and jewels straight away I was thinking about my manhood and I I put put my hand down checked lifted my lifted my hand up and it was just chunks of skin and blood and everything all over my hand and I was just like I felt I felt sick and I was like fuck I'm gone you know um and then I and then at that moment my thumb started pounding pulsing and I looked at it and I had a big hole in my thumb so I was like oh okay I brushed my hand cleaned it made sure it was clean and I checked everything again and luckily uh all was good in that in that sense and i think by this point the medic had got there so the medic came and he started doing you know his his skills and drills are very you know very efficient very professional give me my morphine check my tourniquets i remember him either putting new tourniquets on or tightening the ones that i had done i just remember being a lot a lot of pain really bad pain when he did that and i wanted to punch him um Mm. and then you know, it's, it it seems it's like a little bit of a blur, and then I know they got me on the stretcher, and then on the way out, to to take me to where the helicopter was going to come and pick me up because they, they all this behind the scenes. Of course, my my commander is co- ordering a helicopter or you know, a casi, a casualty mm-hmm. evacuation. He's trying to sort that out behind the scenes. I'm obviously unaware of all of this, mm-hmm. and. uh Next thing I'm on a stretcher getting carried across this field and then boom got hit by another one, got blown off the stretcher. So I got no flown, way. flown in the air. Yeah, flown in the air. Jesus Christ. And the, the medic, the medic had stood on another one. Um and luckily it was a partial detonation or part part call it. And it means that yeah, it it didn't go off as it was intended to, only part of it exploded. I think if, if it was a Fucking full hell. detonation, I'd probably, well, I'd, I'd probably be dead. And there'd definitely be some more injuries amongst, cause we had four guys, of course, on the stretcher. The medic was alongside me, checking me out and making sure I was, uh, my tourniquets were falling off and all that other stuff. Um, so yeah, he, he had like eight fractures from his ankle down to his foot. I think I believe he's, he's pretty right now. Um, you know, he's back, back to good health and everything, didn't have to lose anything. So then it was on the deck and I thought I was blind. I couldn't see anything. And my mate, the commander, uh, he's still one of my best mates to this day. I speak to him all the time. You know, he, he got on top of me and I was saying, I'm blind. I can't see anything. And he wiped all my eyes and tipped water on me. Um, I, it was just mud, uh, a lot of mud yeah, in my yeah. eyes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was, that, I, I remember panicking. That was a really panicky moment. And I yeah. sort of said, you know, why. and I looked at him and I said, uh, you know, how fucked am I now? Because I didn't realise, I did, obviously didn't know it was a par- partial debt at this point. And he looked me up and down and he's like, you know, you're the same fucked. And I was like, okay, right. This, oh. this, so what was know.
1: that? Is that like is that like 10 minutes after the initial one, 30 minutes, something like that? Within the hour, let's say, of it. It's, it
0: was, well, I, I think the helicopter I was on was by about 30 minutes. Okay. um we call it the golden hour obviously you want you need to be back at bastion for about for for an hour for you to be for for the best chance of survival and stuff yeah and the helicopter i remember i remember hearing afterwards that i had no of course no uh, idea of time in this moment so no uh, everything was quite blurry but just from conversations afterwards the i know my my mate was a bit annoyed that the helicopter took 30 minutes which is quite slow for our time because some of commanders in another mm-hmm place we're trying to they wanted to send out vehicles instead like um like combat vehicles to get me uh, which would have been a lot would have been slower but i think sometimes there's politics involved i mean i can't speak for the reasoning behind that um my my, my, my commander and my, my friend seems to think that you know they wanted to just be involved in this kazivak um because sometimes well not sometimes. A lot of times there's a lot of heavy politics involved in and in people wanting to get recognition for things and for being part of things. Oh, okay. and of course, things they could write up um and, and get recognition for and medals potentially, etc. So um I think there's a little bit of that involved quite a lot.
1: when this when this fucking maelstrom begins are you still thinking this could be an ambush there could be people lying in wait watching this field of devices ready to you know what once 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 one gets tripped off then you're going to come under fire are you thinking about something like that or are you is it just a case of just get get the hell out of there and yeah
0: no well for for me i weren't thinking of that i was just thinking of being blown up uh and 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 the pain but yeah. But yeah, so definitely we're, we're, we're drilled and we, we we will have a... Everyone will be watching out. They all, they won't all just okay. be focusing on me. We'll have people sorting me out and then you'll have people facing different directions waiting for, for um, incoming fire or, or any kind of movement towards our position. So, and we were particularly on guard that day, I remember, because we had um, a sniper warning. There was a warning of a sniper in the area uh, that that day or those those, those days. So there had been a sniper operating around us um for some time and i don't know if it was the same sniper or if there was many snipers but i know that you know a friend of mine got killed by a sniper a couple of weeks after that um i think we actually had some had some special forces guys come down and, and and work work on getting rid of these snipers uh, after that uh, which they did so yeah, there's...
1: when i mean uh... I can't even begin to think of the adrenaline that must have been pumping at this moment, but when when you kind of uh when the adrenaline or when you you know a day later or t- two hours later when you actually feel the adrenaline go and and then you you're back to sort of damage
0: assessment
1: uh, how how is that as a feeling from from having the adrenaline of it to then sort of sobering up from it
0: honestly, I think. A lot of this i don't have to say it's like out of control is not the right word but everything seems to happen so fast and you don't i think it's difficult to just be able to make decisions about how you're going to react and Mm. at least for me i didn't i didn't make a decision about anything i just you just kind of go through it and you come out of it how you come out of it um so the of course when i went back from the helicopter they take you back to bastion the main the main base in, in afghan in helmand and then they do the initial surgeries, clean you up as best they can. But then the, the aim is to obviously fly you back to the UK. So that was on a Saturday and on a Sunday I woke up and I was in Bastion. Um, and, and, later that day, they were going to fly me back to the UK. And you know, a lot of that's a bit of a blur. I was actually, uh, but I was awake quite early. A lot of times people uh, don't wake up until they're in the UK and sometimes they don't wake up because they've been put in comas. or or whatever um, until, you know, a week or so later. So I feel like I was quite fortunate and maybe the way um, I've coped with things relatively easily was due to that, too. You know, I I was I was awake. I didn't lose consciousness, even when I got blown up. Often when people get blown up, they lose consciousness there and then and they go into shock and then Mm -hmm. they're not aware of anything, you know, and then they wake up a week or so or days later in the UK hospital. So I think being aware of everything was, was positive in that okay. sense. So nothing was, it wasn't a massive shock. So, and I was able, I was able to call, I called my mother, um, obviously I was laying there Sunday and I thought, you know, shit, my mom's going to be losing her mind. So, um, mm-hmm. I asked for a satellite phone and, uh, call, called her, um, you know chatted with her and told her that i was okay and still alive and uh, i've actually got my mum kept the journal and I, I was reading that the other week actually and uh she's saying how i was you know cracking jokes and messing around talk, making jokes about my legs already mm. um and there was there was a story that went around because they got a the colonel or some kind of high-ranked officer come to see me 'Cause you get it, you get quite a lot of officers coming to see you and they sign a visitor book and they, you know, thank you for your service. And I, some American officers give me like coins and different bits and bobs that yeah. I wasn't really paying much attention to. I couldn't tell you any of the names. Now I was one of our fellows asked if there was anything I needed, anything he could get for me, and I'd asked him for foot powder. Um, and that got back to the guys on the ground and they all knew me as a bit of a joker and you know, mm. the, uh, and that's typical military dark humor. So mm. I heard I heard afterwards that that really lifted their spirits a bit. You know, they obviously they were all in camp feeling a bit shit about what happened, and they'd heard that. I woke up and asked for foot powder, and they were all having 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 a laugh. And I think for me, it was it was important to to do that and to to put this bit of a mask and face on for my family and my friends because. I think when I, on my first tour, like I said, it went okay for me, but there was people that got injured and there was people that died. And I remember going back and visiting a guy that got injured on my first tour. And what hit me the most wasn't his physical injuries, it was his, his personality had changed, he was a a bit of a shell of himself, you know, and it was very difficult to, to deal with, to see. And I didn't really want to do that to anyone that was going to see me, um, Mm
1: -hmm. That's a really interesting point. That's a re- a really really interesting point that that you 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 kind of saw you that you had a duty to the the people who loved you effectively that that you weren't going to allow that to happen to yourself because it would Im- impact them prob- probably more than it would or as bad as it would have impacted you and it would be the the negative uh, thing that happened would then cast a web over. 20 people, let's say, you know, yeah. and you, and that's a really great way to, to look at it, you
0: know. Yeah, and I, I mean, I didn't, and again, I have to stress that these aren't decisions I made at the time. I think that as I've had time to reflect and look back, I think that might be part of of why I chose to deal with it that way. And, and you know, like looking back on the things that affected me, we have seeing people being injured and perhaps that was, that was, an unconscious decision and, and and for why it was an unconscious decision so i am not 100% sure but that's what the conclusions i have come to with with that um i feel like that's probably why and i think sometimes if you stick a mask on enough it tends to stick a little too you know hmm. like it rubs think you, you know fake it till you become it a little bit yeah yeah um it's like like this or public speaking or whatever you know if you wait until you're great at it you might never start but if you just do it and get into it and learn and every every opportunity you get you do it you know you fake it a little bit and and one day you'll do it and you'll be like oh shit i'm actually quite good at this <laughs> you know or it, that's, that's
1: exactly yeah that's that's exactly what uh what wilco said in uh in the last podcast he said uh you know I, I, it, you've just got to get out there and and learn on the job and and i always say I say this to everybody, if you never leave your house because you your leg hurts, you're never going to go on a run because your toe hurts, you'll never do anything. If you always say, oh, I don't want to go and play golf, my back hurts, whatever it is, if you always say this, you'll never leave the house. You just go and do it, you know. And and I think, you know, it's uh, going back to obviously what happened with yourself and, and and you say putting a mask on but i, I would say it was probably a, a subconscious tool that you were using to to sort of handle the situation you know and and it, it's kind of like do you take the red pill or the blue pill after such a massive you know incident you can go yeah. one way or the other you can go one way or the other you know and unfortunately and i'm like like you said you know one one guy you knew you know didn't take the didn't take the red pill took the blue pill and so on, you know, and it's no. really, it's really interesting to explore what that mechanism is that, that kind of, is it in your character? Is it learned? Is it people? I think around it's both, you?
0: honestly. I think, because I must say that, that that guy I was talking about now is doing amazing and he's a really, you know, he's, he's doing really well, doing really oh, amazing. And not, yeah. and not just, not just getting by, you know, he's done, he's smashing stuff and he's doing, doing really, really well. So you'd obviously come out of that place but he, you know he, he was yeah, very yeah. young when he got injured he was 19 years old you know so he was, was very young um so, so and i think some people also it just takes time for things to click like i've seen people from my rehab uh days again some of them just were in the dumps and in a wheelchair and you never thought they were ever going to get better really and they were going to be stuck and then years later you've i've seen them on facebook or something and they they're flying so Sometimes maybe it just something it just takes something for things mm-hmm. to click in or they need to find a reason or a purpose or whatever it might be. But I think also it- for me, I felt like I had it before I got injured. I didn't think that before, but looking back, you know, I was always quite, not to be big at it, but I was a, I was a good soldier. I was, and I think what made me a good soldier was my, was my mental uh, robustness. You know I was able I was able to stay calm under stress and think and I, I was always on top of my fitness. I always cared about my fitness and and being good at what I did. Uh, I w I wasn't happy with just you know being in the army and and just getting by and I, you know I wanted to be at the top of fitness test. I wanted to be a good I wanted to be a good soldier. Um, you know I had I won best recruit in when my training phase were you know it, it's just something I cared about and I think it's something that I've always been quite competitive. I think a lot of people that join the army of course come from from different backgrounds and some people join it because it's maybe it's a last resort for them or it's the only option they feel they have and some of them don't actually care too much about being there it's a paycheck and it's it's um it's something to do keeps them off the streets which is fine but you have lots of different characters in the military, you know, it's, um, and, and you know, I wasn't, I wasn't best friends with everyone in the army. You meet, you meet certain people like everywhere, you meet certain people you click with, mm-hmm. um, and a lot, and a lot of those other guys were similar to me in terms of, you know, they cared and they had pride and they had an and, and ethos about them that, um, they had values and standards and yeah, I think, I think that's like everywhere, walk of life really, but, but definitely in, in the military you have different types and i think not everyone is meant to be in the army that is in the army and i think that Mm. is also a big part of the whole ptsd um dilemma now i think the the army gets a lot of the blame for that often and i think if they're to blame to be blamed for anything i would say it's probably just not strict enough criteria on who they let in because i think a lot of people that come in uh susceptible to getting ptsd before you even go on at all like some of these people you meet there you can see they're already damaged people they're already i could have pointed at people before tour and i probably did at some point because i was a bit of a dick sometimes and Mm. say and say you know ptsd 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 and i could have picked a bunch out and like that that have got ptsd now before we even went anywhere a lot of these people haven't even got what I would consider post-traumatic stress problems from Afghanistan, I think they're just the life problems, you know, just an, an inability to deal with any stress or any any, you know, hard hard periods or what often we just consider to be life issues.
1: And I think that's kind of uh, you know my, my sort of opinion of that is it's it's kind of built from. It's, it's from obviously it's from your upbringing you know obviously it's from your parents have a have a big a big say in that you know and and this is a that's a really broad sort of spectrum of of a really broad question about gen, people in general but I think a lot of the a lot of that sort of like you say stems from the army being seen as kind of like a last resort when really it should be seen as like an elite. Form of elite form of work, you know. You're on the front line. You're defending a country. It should be seen as elite, and like like you say, the selection of you know, there should be should be tighter for sure. I think.
0: Yeah, I, it's difficult because, of course, there's a numbers game. You need they need certain amount of people, and they need if you're not getting the the influx in, you need to let the standards go a little bit to get people in. Mm-hmm especially i think that's probably what they did around afghan iraq era when they needed more people and just let let more slip through the net um, yeah yeah But, but that's a, i guess that's a different conversation i guess
1: yeah i was just actually thinking that going down that road could go could go a long time but how do you i saw i, I was looking through your your sort of social media just in the preparing for this night. i saw a great an amazing video uh and i just want to mention it where you i don't know if it's your first steps on the prosthetic legs but yeah uh, yeah i know good, what you mean yeah so so I saw that video and it's been it's being recorded someone who subsequently later became your wife and the mother to to your children that really was a moment it, you know it really made me think for a minute and I was kind of like you know the journey that you you went on from being blown up in a desert To then taking such a uh, an amazing thing out of that experience that possibly wouldn't have happened without that happening and it's kind of like bittersweet almost that that had to happen for you to be where you are now
0: yeah it's a little bit it's a little bit funny because I've always been the guy that says you know I don't I don't believe or scoff the people that said you know well everything yeah, happened yeah. for a reason and all this sort of stuff and that's stereotypical cheese and then of course my physiotherapist um that i had after being injured is now my yeah partner and mother of my children and the reason i'm living in norway and you know we're very happy we built a house together and how uh, and a life together um so yeah so now i have to almost eat my own words and say oh maybe everything happens for a reason but but no it's um it's it's very uh, interesting and and i definitely yeah it's definitely hard to wish that it never happened when all of this good stuff has happened after it and because of it you know like the kids i have and of course If anyone has kids, you you can never wish them away or want to change anything, and uh, so 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 yeah, like it's a bittersweet. It's very people often ask me if I would want my legs back, or people always ask me these questions, and it's such a hard. It should be a very easy question to answer, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. This is what this is what that's what made me think, and it sort of made me think. Do do you do you sort of see your do you look at your life as before and after that?
0: I, I often know. say that I feel like I was almost like reborn in a way, like it was like it's another life. I often say, especially when I talk about the army and different day, other days, I always talk about like a lifetime ago, like another in another life. Mm-hmm. I feel like, yeah, I really feel like I've had a second life. Um, my outlook on things. I mean, I wish I wish it didn't take me getting blown up and losing legs to to see things the way I see them, but but I, but I, you know, I did and I do, and uh, I've got such a better zest for life and appreciation for things. And I think um, just a better outlook on stuff and a and more drive, you know, more drive. Like I was a pretty, like I said, I was a pretty driven person anyway, but I think I'm much more able to clarify and be clear on, on, on why I want things and, and, and drive towards them Whereas before I was thinking I was just competitive for the sake of being competitive, right? Like like a lot of young guys, I guess, in that sort of headspace. You know, I wanted to be the, the look good and be bigger than everyone and be fitter than everyone. And it was just more of an ego thing. But now I have a lot more reasons, a lot more reasons for things. Probably mm-hmm. and uh, probably part of that's growing up as well and getting older and having kids and everything else. But but definitely the time I had to reflect on things. Which you have to do or I think I have to do. There's not there's not a chance I would have been able to go through um my rehab and losing my legs and all that other stuff if I still had the same kind of attitude that I had beforehand, you know, because I was such a in a sense yeah, vain. I can say vain, or just again a young lad that, that was my world, you know, my physic my physicality and my my looks and and the uh, and my my performance. That was very much my identity in a way. And to, so to be able to reassess that and take time to reflect on why it was important and you know what what's important now and what, what 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 I can do and why why I had the beliefs I had all these different things you know you have to question the list is endless you have to really reevaluate everything and I had did you wasn't certain times? Well, it was, so wasn't just sure, easy yeah. times. It was. um. You know, I went through bad patches where I was fighting a lot, going out to town. You know, I think I had a chip on my shoulder. I felt like I probably had to, again, this is all on reflection. I think I think I got arrested three three times in three months. Pepper sprayed twice out of those. You know, scrapping with police and uh, and and on reflection of that, I think it was just due to me feeling like I had to prove I was still the tough guy and still could still handle myself and. And, you know, back in battalion in the unit, I had a little bit of a reputation of guys seeing me a certain way. And I felt like I had to uphold that and it's just stupid stuff, really. But it took yeah. me it, had to, it took me a moment to, to sit down and reflect on it and why I, why I was doing it and why I felt like it was important and realized it wasn't important. And, you know, all the stuff, all the stuff.
1: It's, it's quite a, it's quite, well, it's a great example of like a growth mindset, you know, of what you've now, how you now have to adapt your life to make it the fullest life you can have, you know, and it, it I don't want to say it took that moment to, to 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 spur that on, but it that was a massive catalyst in changing your outlook on life and maybe reassessing attitude or behaviours yeah. and things
0: And there's been loads of those catalysts, and they've they've come thick and fast and they've come in many areas of my life. And um, I think I think once you're able to do it to one aspect, you start looking at other aspects. And um, I think, you know, you fight it for a long time. Sometimes I think you think you're adapting, but you know you're fighting it, you know. Mm. And so and sometimes things aren't adaptable, sometimes require acceptance and not adaptation as well. Mm. Right. I think I think sometimes, you know, like there are some things that you just can't you can only adapt things so far and you're going to have to accept some things. You're going to have to accept that maybe I have to do things a little slower now or do things a different way or not trying to force a a square peg into a round hole. You know, Mm. you have to just say, okay, I'm 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 square now. I'm not around.
1: Was there? Was there any moments of where you sort of felt real anger or bitterness to the to the people who who, who put the put the IED down to the to the army for putting you there? Was the was there any sort of bitterness? I know I I, I asked that because I, I I can be quite a bitter person and I, I, and it's that's one of my sort of weaknesses is that I I tend to hold a bit of a you know if somebody is done something especially work wise or something I find it really I'm, I can be quite bitter and I'm really working on this to sort of let it go and there's been things in the past with myself not on this scale uh, uh, I could tell you but where I've, I've really been a bit angry about something or I mean I, I, how did you handle that did you feel the same or did you
0: there was definitely a lot of anger there like I said um, with all the you know the fighting and all that, that doesn't come without anger but I think a lot of my anger was directed or was coming from uh, her ego and stuff like that. But in terms of bitterness towards people, I never, ever, even when I was out there, felt any personal hatred or or bitterness or anger towards Taliban, actually. I, 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 I never took it personal. I, I never looked at them as a as the devil or anything like that, of course, mm. they were enemy and they shot me, I shot back. And if, you know, if, if you killed one, then it would be, it wouldn't be, again, it, You, I wouldn't feel, you wouldn't feel joy out of it or, or happy about it. Mm. it wouldn't, you wouldn't feel sad. It was just one of those things that you, you did and, and they were doing what they were doing, you know, um, they, like they're doing what they think they, they they're doing it because they think they're doing right. Mm. And we're doing what we're doing because we think we're right. You know if i i had that mindset even when i was there i didn't i didn't buy into the i didn't really care about the religious side of things or any of that sort of stuff you know i didn't make it personal at all the only bitterness i felt i had was as i said before i i really bought into the whole be the best thing in the army you know like be be the best you can be and and train hard work hard and, and and when I was in training, they used to always say, "Oh, pace, pays, pays to be a winner, pays to be a winner. And I was, someone was calling me. Um, there was a period there that I felt I, was, I felt really annoyed and pissed off that I was like, it doesn't pay to be a winner. Because often I saw guys that were not good soldiers and, you know, we call them Hmongs, you know, they weren't politically incorrect now, I guess. Mm-hmm. They, they just were bad soldiers, Unfit, and they would just get given, you know, easy jobs in the back, keep them out of the way. They'd be at the post office or sorting out, you know, sorting out the mail or doing something that didn't really involve a lot of combat. And of course, they would have easy tours, and they'd get the same medal as me, and no, it be no same pension, same yeah. Yeah, oh, and often they could they could obviously coast through the career and even get some ranks and everything else and. So there was a little i was bitter about that i was bitter about the fact that there were so many what i would consider not good soldiers Mm. getting cushy jobs and but then uh, but then again uh, the way i got over that was would i want to trade places you know would i have wanted to have been the guy that got put in the back because he was a shit soldier and then the answer to that was no so i wouldn't want to change that either i wouldn't want to trade places with them
1: no that's that's interesting because uh it happens in the army. It happens in you know. I've worked in I've worked in in a company where being mediocre was rewarded because the people who were mediocre, who who didn't have the technical abilities, obviously didn't have the confidence to express any opinions, so they weren't giving any trouble to the supervisors or the management. So they were just sort of moseying along. And then when things came up, it was okay. Well, w- w- you know, we're not going to progress Steve anywhere because he's got an opinion and he's been in the industry a long time, for example, and, and you see the people around you and you think, how the hell has he gone, got where he has got? And yeah. and I actually, I had a long, hard sort of think about this because, again, well, going back to me being bitter and and just my experience with it, and I kind of looked in the mirror and I thought I wouldn't change anything I wouldn't suck up to anybody because it's about integrity, you know, and and if you go into work every day, be it the army or or whatever you do, and you have integrity and you're true to yourself, then at the end of the day, you know, what will be, will be. And you can look back and say, no, you know what, I'm not going to change anything. And I think in a lot of sort of, in a lot of workplaces, you sort of see these people, I, I call them chances, that, that's my word for it, it's chances. You know, they know exactly They know exactly what they're doing. They don't go to the tough jobs. They don't go to the difficult projects. They, they come in at the beginning and they come in at the end and they take the glory for everything. You know, they take the glory for the mm. sale and they take the glory for the handover. They don't do anything in between. They're very smart in the way that they can sort of manipulate things. And I've seen these people ten to the dozen Like, and I can spot them a mile away, you know, and these chances, obviously you, you, you encounter them, but you know, in, in the long run, maybe it does get you where you need to be. But for me, it's about it being integrity, you know, having integrity, going in every day, doing the best you can do.
0: Your man, Wilco mentioned it in, in, in the last podcast, he talked about the journey. And for me, it's, the destination isn't worth as much if you get there by, by by standards that are not your own you know like i think i have certain standards and values that i believe in and i want to i, I want to hold myself up to be to be that i what i consider what i identify myself as that, that type of person and and if that means holding on to that doesn't get me somewhere then then I, then i don't get there that. that's fine i'd rather that than disregard all my values and standards and get to the destination um it would be fruitless you know for me i, mm-hmm. I don't think and it's the same and, and that goes with every walk in life right whether it's whether you're talking about people liking you or not like I, I would i would rather people didn't like me for for who i was than than you know like me for for a face that i put on and, or just 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 to get liked mm-hmm. um I, I, at least then the ones the, the less people that do like me at least i know they like me for who i am and they like what I'm about, and the and, and, and same with everything, everything I do, if, if I, you know, if I don't manage to do it, doing it the way I do it, then that's fine, I can accept it, you know, I wasn't good enough, or, or whatever it might be, rather than cut corners and and, and do it mm-hmm. that way, so.
1: So, po- post-army, obviously, it's a, a really inspiring, a really inspiring story of, of where you are now in uh, what, what sort of projects have you undertaken since then? I know you've been in, involved with some mountains and some speaking and other things. Just talk to us about that.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, originally after the army, I was trying out all sorts of stuff, you know, trying to figure out what I was going to do again. Uh, yeah, I'm speaking Norwegian again. <laughs> um, and, and, and really just not, not really having a clue. So I, I was straight into sports. You know, I got I got scouted for different sports. I was doing sprinting a little bit. Uh, that was quite a frustrating process because I you need you really need the legs to be fitting properly and everything else. And early stages of amputation, there's a lot of changes in your legs. So you have to change your prosthetics quite often. So I was really hitting hitting stumps, to, just for the pun there, uh, quite a lot with trying to, to get the training done for sprinting. So then I ended up moving into powerlifting and I was actually doing pretty well at powerlifting. I was like number one in my category in the UK. For the paralympic powerlifting which is just bench press uh won a couple of competitions there and that was looking pretty positive you know i was i, was, I think i was like number eight in europe and i'd only just started i think i'd be doing it for about a year um so yeah it was looking pretty good and i actually got a spot on the paralympic team for 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 that but around that same time it was when my partner had moved to norway and was asking me to come over and the i wasn't going to be able to do both so I ended up choosing to come to Norway. And uh, since then, you know, I opened up a business, started a gym here, which I run for six years, closed it down last year. That was a good learning experience. Um, obviously it didn't go great, that's why I closed it. But um, but again, it was, if I was gonna do something, I was gonna go all in and I threw myself into it. And and uh, I don't regret it, it was, it was good fun. I had a good, good but, six uh, years out of it.
1: How did you adapt to Norwegian culture?
0: Uh, I'm not sure if I have still. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm the,
1: no, I'm the same. I, I'm the, totally the same.
0: No, I'm I'm still doing me a little bit. Like you know, I'm there's there's still a little bit of a clash now and then, but I, generally I get on really well. You know, I've got I'm doing bits and bobs of part time work here with, with schools with handicapped kids, trying to help them go through high school. So like, that's rewarding and course i'm like most jobs you're meeting people socializing a bit and it really helps with my norwegian and stuff too and um, And you
1: you're you're in the best country i think for for investment in 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 disabled children for example less able children because mm -hmm. they really they really put my wife works in the school and and they really the, the government and the funding really have the resources for for helping uh, helping those kids, you know? I mean, it's like you, you could be in a lot of worse places for doing that kind of thing. I know that for sure. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And they give me quite a lot of freedom as well. There's not like a lot of red tape here yet. So, yeah, you know, I'll give you an example. Like last week, usually I have one kid. He's got cerebral palsy, uh, like a lowish level of it. He's not in a wheelchair. He's, he can still get around himself. And... I usually take him out the second half of high school on the Friday when I take him to a work placement in a supermarket, just to try and get him some life skills and get him introduce, introduced into working. But he was he had a bit of pain, um, so he didn't feel up to doing it. And they were talking about just sending him home. And I said, well, he's just gonna sit home and do nothing. I was like, what about, what? can I just take him home with me? And we'll, mm. I'll teach him, how, teach him how to make some food and stuff. You know, I'm really into my, my food. Uh, Making my cooking and stuff, so they said, "Yeah, sure, if 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 you're willing to do that." And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, it's no mm. bother." So we took him home, and I'd asked him what he wanted to make, and he t- he said he'd never tried pancakes. So I was like, "Okay, then we'll make pancakes." Well, so couldn't believe tried That's, fantastic. Never that's so, fantastic. Yeah, so I had him home, and 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 I, and and I make it into into skills for his disability. So even just you know like dealing with. Uh, pouring flour steadily into a weighing scale with someone with CP and stuff, you know, and, and, and watching the weight. Like I tell him, he's got to get 300 grams, and he's pouring it steadily in. And uh, and even like last another time, we were making mashed potato, and I made him peel the potatoes and stuff, you know. Again, maybe that's my military it's, stuff kicking in.
1: Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing because th- these are the things that that you absolutely take for granted. You, you do it, and you don't even think about it.
0: No, exactly. And,
1: and you, you're never gonna. You, if you're in school, he's never gonna gonna peel potatoes, or you know, he's relying on on his parents or his family or, or somebody, like, somebody like yourself just to take those few hours, do those really things that we just such take for granted yeah you know and so I'm really just Norway is is good at that kind of thing
0: yeah it's really it's a really good system so I'm enjoying that work and I'm enjoying the fact that they they give me that kind of leeway to to also have my own little methods in a way and it's Mm. obviously my background there's a little bit of tough love in there which they need you know I think they they get away with Mm. or he's got away with a lot of just blaming things on pain and being allowed to sit down and not do anything and i can see yeah, i've yeah. picked i've picked him up on lying about it as well which he's done and he's admitted it afterwards when i've caught him out he doesn't mm. want to do something so he says he's got pain and he gets people allowing him to sit down whereas i haven't i just find him something else to do
1: yeah yeah so, that was a big it was a big uh culture shock for me here was with kids when when i moved here i had two young kids two and seven when i moved here and and when i when our first week or so when i was here i'm seeing like five and six-year-olds walking to school on their own up the road and i was like yeah oh my i was like oh my god there's there's two kids that are not that are out or not, not with the parents what's going on like type of thing and then and then i was sort of said to a work colleague I was like, just two kids walking down the street, and they were like, yeah, yeah, why? What? what what's the problem? School time. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah, so they're going They're going to school. And I was like, well, where is the parents. that The parents have to take kids to school. No, no, uh, no, it's not like that in Norway. So I was like, okay. And then and then, sort of like go forward eight years or whatever. When anybody says to me, ah, ah yeah, but you're paying 12 euros for one beer. So I say, yeah, but I'd rather pay twelve euros for one beer. My my five-year-old can go to school on her own. Yeah. You know? So it's it's that that's the culture clash you have here. It's like yeah, you, people always
0: bring up the taxes. My, like my friends and stuff back home will always bring up the taxes. But I say I paid less tax in Cardiff, and I was more. I begrudged paying that more than I. I don't really. I don't begrudge paying tax here because no, you know, everything don't. works nice and it's. I don't think about it. Whereas when I used to pay council tax in Cardiff, where I lived, the bins weren't taken properly, the, the the area looked rubbish, you know, things weren't kept properly. And I used to think, why am I even paying council tax? Things aren't even, yeah. the things that are supposed to be getting done with this money aren't getting done. So then yeah. you, it was more on my mind then paying less than it is now. I don't even think about it. I,
1: I was exactly the same, I don't I don't even think about it. What what I will say is, it's, bloody difficult when there's 70 million people in a country to run it than when there's 5 million you know and Absolutely. population density like, has a massive
0: yeah. thing to say yeah. you know
1: and That's if you look thing, at every yeah, country there's...
0: in the world that has high population density they have the same problems it's, 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 there's just yeah. logic as well right it's like yeah. my gym that I had it had a capacity for 300 people if I was to get more than that I'd have to look at expand or open another location or figure out some kind of scheduling system you know it's that's just on a basic level of of something like a training center you mm. take that and, and that and that goes for everything right everything has a capacity
1: yeah yeah and it it works both ways doesn't it i mean we're, we're both involved in in rugby and and you know in it's very sparse population so you know you you, you you're getting low numbers at that you've got to really work super hard in norway to sort of get things off the ground in terms of th- projects like that you know so it, it's, it swings and roundabouts isn't it you know it's take one yeah for the other, you know
0: yeah it is it is that and then same with things like you know amazon and stuff right deliveries and different yeah. things you know when when things are such big distances and you know the towns the yeah. are so far apart from each other and
1: yeah, don't don't buy don't buy any supplements from the USA if you don't want to pay DHL nine hundred krona to get them released.
0: Oh well, I anyway. made the mistake of buying supplements when I first moved here, and because it was whey protein, which is classed as a dairy product, and there's massive tax on importing dairy, so I got smashed. I think I paid yeah. almost as much for the toll as I did for the actual stuff I was paying. Yeah, it was it's like insane. A, it was like hundred and fifty quid each, so I ended up paying like three hundred pounds. Yeah, it was last last time I did that.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What uh, what projects are in the pipeline then going forward twenty twenty four?
0: Yeah, so since Norway, I've been doing a lot of mountain stuff. Um, really falling in love with the hiking and the the, the trekking and the, the getting to the summits of mountains. So that's been on my agenda now the last few years. My first one was Mont Blanc in two thousand nineteen. My first big one. I did um, did Mont Blanc, and after that, I was just bit, you know, a bit bit by the bug, yeah, and yeah. and I think I've been doing a mountain almost every year since, uh, and I pretty much my aim is to do do one mountain at least every year, and just try and just learn and try and get better it and and build competence in it. Mm-hmm. Um, again, talking about that journey side of it, so next thing for me is i'm actually going away in a couple of weeks to switzerland and i'm training with a team of all adaptive people actually so everyone with a disability uh, apart from some of the guides and the experts mm-hmm. leading it um we're doing a training camp so we're, we're learning skills on crevasse rescue and all these all these different different parts of of, of uh, mountaineering that that we'll need well hopefully not need but could need yeah um, and then this is part all part of going to Denali hope, uh, next year. So I'm, I've been accepted to be on a team heading to Denali next year. And it's again, it's a fully adaptive team. So everybody on the team will have some kind of disability. And I've climbed with a couple of them already and some of them I haven't met, which I'll be meeting for the first time in a couple of weeks. So it'll be good, good to meet those. And then there'll be a couple of other training sessions I think there'll be one in Norway earlier next year, maybe around the March time. And I think there's another one in Chamonix also early next year. And then we're heading to Denali in April. So there'll be. Um, so that's that's me now. I'm just training, training every week, trying to uh, stay on top of things and build fitness, ready for the ready for that big one.
1: Denali, I think, is that the is the highest ascent of uh from from sea level No, i think if you take the from from where you start to the summit i think it's the highest ascent let's say because for everest for example you start from base camp which is already yeah. six thousand 6, meters so i think denali is the highest ascent on earth if you go yeah, maybe from
0: base I, camp to I, I actually don't know i just know that it's yeah. got to be hard
1: yeah yeah i I'm, um i'm 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 pretty sure i've read that that from from base camp to to the summit it's the the highest descent possible yeah
0: i'll have to look it up when i get off get off this but um but no it's uh it's going to be definitely a massive challenge it's going to be the hardest thing that i've done Mm -hmm. so far um i used just done kilimanjaro just before the summer in march so that was the highest i've been so far that was five thousand eight hundred meters uh, but was, it was technically it was pretty easy. It's just a, it's it's a trek, you know. But the last the last two days were tough, like long, just long days, like little sleep, a lot of walking. um So it's def- definitely not easy. But it's, you know, it wasn't it wasn't insane. I think. How did the altitude like,
1: affect? How did the altitude affect you?
0: I was pretty okay. I I got to I don't know maybe like five thousand two hundred or something, and I was sick, but I was just sick once and then i was fine i didn't have any yeah. headaches or anything i think mostly that was down to exhaustion and lack of sleep i had I didn't, we obviously left at one o'clock in the morning and didn't i didn't sleep until then um mm. try to try to but excitement and nerves mm. and everything i just and the, and the timing the timing trying to go to sleep at five in the evening and stuff but it just didn't didn't happen so mm. so i think i was just pretty pretty tired um and yeah, I, was, I remember we were going up you know, pretty fast, overtook quite a lot of people and was feeling good. And then then I started feeling really sluggish, just felt really slow. And I was a bit like, oh, I feel like I don't have any energy. So I stopped, stop and eat something. And then as soon as I ate something, I just spewed it straight up, come straight out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I was, and then uh, I took another bite, was sick again. And then all of a sudden, it was like a wave just lifted over me and I felt much better again and I was like oh okay that was that and then I finished the rest of my snack and had some more and we just cracked straight on and that was the last the last problem I had I didn't have any problems then at the top so and that was a big part of that was testing out the altitude so again even that was the thinking behind that was planning for Denali as well and, um, mm. and after, after that trip then actually I had the phone call from the from the guys on the team saying that if I was still up at the Nary, I was I was on the team. So, so yeah, so it was cool. Um, so you you're really you, you not you're
1: not too far to seven seven summits then, yeah.
0: Pretty far. I mean, I've only done one. Right. <laughs>
1: okay.
0: So I've only done. The, yeah, I've, I mean, if I do the Nary, that'll be second. I mean, I never like to take any mountain for granted. Uh, no, you know, no. I think I think the mountains. I respect them too much. I never want to assume that I can make it. To the top of any mountain, um, yeah, yeah. so much can happen, you know. this weather and there's so much out of your control. All I can do is turn up and do my best and push myself like I usually do, and um, you know, and, and 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 do what I can. Everything else is yeah, out of yeah. my control, really. But... Oh
1: yeah, because M- M- Mont Blanc is not one, is it? El Elbrus is uh, El Elbrus is Europe's.
0: Uh, league, yeah, Elbrus is so yeah, Mont yeah, Blanc's the. It used to be, I think, because you, yeah, be, that's what's
1: confused me. Yeah, yeah.
0: this is well, the continental Europe now is the top of continental Europe, but yeah, yeah. But no, it's uh um, but it's a great, it's a great mountain to do Mont Blanc. I really enjoyed that one. It's one of my favorite ones that I've done so far.
1: Yeah, a friend of mine. We were talking a few years ago. He he went. Uh, he I don't know if he did Mont Blanc, uh, but I know he did some other peaks in the Mont Blanc mass, massif. And we, we were looking at it, and I was uh, trying to figure it out. I had some other commitments at the time, and but yeah, I mean, it's uh, that's definitely on my radar. Elbrus, I've been looking at as well. Mm. It's just time, isn't it, mate? Just time and money, and just getting things organised. And, just...
0: and there's a time, there's a time for everything, right? And and it's like I'm not, I'm not trying to kick the ass out of stuff now or force things either. Like people are always ask me, oh, what's this... Typical stupid question is always oh, Everest, Everest next. Then and it's like that's not even in my, not even in my horizon. You know, it's not even something I'm thinking of. I'm just taking one thing at a time, trying to trying to enjoy it as much as I can, trying to learn as much as I can, and I'm not I'm not thinking too far ahead of of mountains and um, yeah. I think this. I mean, it might be it might be possible that I'll end up going towards the Seven Summits just because the team that I'm climbing with. They're called Adaptive Grand Slam and it's headed up by an ex-officer uh, from the British Army who is paralysed in his arm. He got shot in the shoulder, he's got paralysed arm and he started this organisation and, and the goal behind it was to try and get the first Adaptive Grand Slam. And for those that don't know, the Grand Slam uh, is the Seven Summits, uh, which is sort of the, the, the highest mountain on each continent plus the north pole and the south pole these are the that's the explorers grand slam um and he's i think he's he's himself he's led teams up many of them and he himself has done all of them but one now i think he's got the one in it is it carsten's pyramid or or Uh, oh yeah okay like in in, indonesia i think he's so he's done the north pole south pole everest he's done all of them that's the last one and he's just had difficulty getting access to it because of the the p- political dramas they have there—they don't mm-hmm. allow um, visas and stuff often. So he's had some no, issues no. getting there to do that. But once he's done that, then he will be the first adaptive uh, Grand Slam uh, wow. participant. So yeah,
1: ah, it's great—it's great to see these sort of projects from people you know who had setbacks and they sort of don't let it. Much like yourself, don't don't let it stop them. You know, just adapt. You know, keep the mental fortitude. You know, keep busy. You know, it's brilliant. You know, I mean, uh, I, I've got a quad injury now. I've torn my quad muscle. You know, and it's that's. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, I mean, I was a bit pissed off, and I'm thinking there's nothing. You know, just get on with other things, and it's it's yeah. interesting to, to, how how sort of injuries, you know, can either hold you back or can open up new new uh, avenues. You know, so I'm I'm thinking, okay. If I can't run as much, I'm going to go swimming three times instead, or something. I think I think it's important. You don't sort of ah, uh, you know, just let it get you. You know, you keep keep going. Yeah, there's always else.
0: there's always things to work around and things to do, and you it's, you you change for the better so much. And often we've got so many weaknesses as well that it could give us a good chance to work on those for a bit as well. You know, things that we've neglected, and there's always stuff you can work on always yeah. so um i think mean, i've i've never had a year off training even the year i got injured I, I i was back in the gym you know, weeks after my injury i was actually one of the things i was actually doing again uh so my mother's journal that she i was doing trying to do dips and stuff in the on the side of the hospital bed and trying to trying to stay in shape and do stuff and i think one of the i remember asking to get down to the gym in the hospital but it was like a physio gym So I couldn't wait to get physio just because as soon as they'd finished my physio session i'd be on the weight test and getting straight on them um so i've i think i was having a conversation in because in the school i'm working at actually the other day and they were talking about phases of their life and they were talking about phases when they've been in great shape or phases they were in shape and stuff like that and then they sort of looked at me and said oh well you know have you ever been like have you felt like not or have you been in good shape or have you been in bad shape and i was like i've always been in shape. I've never I'm not trained, so I haven't had one of those phases. I've always, since I was 14 years old, I've trained. You know, it's just a almost at this point, it's just a habit that I do. It's not even it's not even something I'm motivated to do that much anymore, so to speak. Or if I have motivated periods, then maybe I train a little bit more, more intensity and everything else. But generally, I just go for the motions of training. Now it's it's such a habit.
1: Do you think that that physical sort of being physically fit has almost has almost put your mind into like auto drive, autopilot, and and that you've not had, you, you've always had that, and they say healthy body, healthy mind. You've always had that as your base, you know, your fit body, and sort of your mind's just followed it. You know, rather than let's say if you if you're not fit, if you're not working out, you know, if you if you have then the, the you know the ca- the catastrophe that you had, you know, and let's say you weren't, into, you didn't have that physical fitness to, to fall back on that could go another way.
0: Fitness wins, in my opinion. Fitness yeah. wins. I think I've, I've always one hundred percent believe that being fit helps you mentally. Um, yeah. Both back, obviously, back to the military days. That being being fit enough to be able to make. Uh, the correct and fast decisions, you know, uh, deal, deal with stresses, carry people if you need to, uh, you know, you, you, if you're, if you're out of breath and tired and, and, and generally struggling, running across a field under, under fire, and then having to make decisions as well, or, and, and, and count how many ammunition, how much ammunition you've got left and give a report to your, to your commander um, collect information. You can't do that. If you're, if you're hanging out and blowing out your ass yeah. and, and try and trying and to gather this information and try and make a correct decision, um, and, and, and give correct information, you know, it's, it's very difficult to do. And I think a lot of mistakes are going to happen. And I think, I don't like separating mental health and physical health. I think they are the same. I think they, they both fit into each other. Um, I think both affect each other. If you, if you're bad, physically you'll be you're bad you'll be bad mentally and if yeah. you're bad mentally you will be bad physically you will yeah. the, the, if you're bad mentally the stress and all the all the other sides of it that creep into your body will show it'll come you know the tension the the, the everything you know the the, the shown that the stress can induce like slow down your metabolism and induce overeating and all this other stuff it, not all of that's just mental stuff and yeah, it's
1: going to have you, an effect. And if you if you if you're unfit, unhealthy, it's it's a massive snowball effect. You don't sleep properly. You wake up feeling like shit. You're in a bad mood. You're snapping at people. You know you don't do your job properly. You're not you know de- you know you're not developing your career. You're not you know it's like you say. That's a great way to put it. They're both in. Don't think of them separately. Think of them as one and the same. It's it's really true. No, it's
0: it's and and not even just that. Like I look at health as multifaceted. You know, I think you have social health, you have mental health, physical health, you have uh, financial health. Mm. It's a it's a multifaceted thing, right? Like you need to have all these areas. You don't have to be winning in all of them, but you have to have some kind of grasp on them all to Mm. be truly to be truly healthy. To be a truly healthy person, you need you need that. Like because you because don't get me wrong, you could be mentally tough and mentally fit, but if you're like zero in on those two things completely you know you, your social health might not be that great you know you might not be being the best dad or the best mm-hmm. family member um, because you're being quite selfish and focusing on that and 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 some 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 people need that for a period if they're going to accomplish crazy things um mm-hmm. you know right it's not necessarily a bad thing but i think there should be a period for it and you can't yeah, go through yeah. your whole life like that you know if I mean, fair play to people that are going to do that and accomplish some insane stuff. And they need that space. Like you see it all the time. You see your, you're in, your insane athletes that seem a bit weird and seem a bit crazy because that's what they've done. They guarantee this. So they can't be. Their social health and anything else can't be that good because... Ta- tiger Woods. Thing.
1: Tiger Woods is a classic example, yes, I think, ta- of like, you know.
0: There's, there's so many. I, I even look at people like Dwayne the Rock Johnson, right? I love the guy. I think he's amazing. He's inspiring. He's such. Seems like such a good guy. But he is so busy. He's doing so much stuff. There's not a chance that he can be around his kids not, that much, that often. He's, he's mm-hmm. zipping around so much. Some something's got to give somewhere, right? There's there's got to be mm-hmm. su- something suffering somewhere. Yeah.
1: I'll ask him and when it, he comes on the podcast.
0: Yeah, yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> yeah.
1: I'll find. I'll get to the bottom of it and find out. But uh, Stephen, I'm I'm conscious of the time, mate, and it's been uh, absolutely amazing. What an inspiring story! And uh, all the best for everything going forward, mate. It's been uh, been great.
0: Yeah, I appreciate. It's it been great being on and getting a chance to chat and again learn and grow through my uh, public speaking and everything else. So now it's back to the bed.
1: That's that's one thing you're going to try your hand at now. A bit of speaking.
0: Yeah. So I just recently did a presentation. It's something I've been thinking about for a while. So I threw my, threw my hat in and did one the other day. It went pretty well. And I've got a few others off the back of doing that as well. So I think it's, it was quite fun. It was a good little buzz and, uh, great feedback from it. And it seemed to help a lot of people too. So, so of course that's always a nice feeling. And, um, yeah, it was just, I think what it, I was really nervous about it before it was really nervous and anxious. And I think whenever you get that kind of feeling, you know, you're doing something right in a way. Yeah. You're like, you're in the right place. Yeah. When absolutely. you're having just say it. conversations with yourself leading up to it about, oh, maybe I shouldn't do it. Maybe I should tell them I'm, I can't do it. Or same as when I'm on the mountains, often I have these conversations with myself saying, this is stupid. You shouldn't be doing this. This is, you don't have to be doing it. You know, you're an amputee. You just go sit down. Like, I have these com- i don't just walk up these mountains you know i have these conversations with myself saying this is terrible this is stupid uh i want to i need a break i need to and then, of course i get through it and at the end i think that's when you know you're in the right place and you're doing the right stuff is when you're having these conversations with yourself and you, you're you're it's going
1: out, it's going out of your comfort zone that's that's basically it is 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 putting yourself in in situations where you're terrified you're nervous you're anxious you know, and w- what you find is that once you get through it, you come out the other side. You grow a little bit, not point one percent. You grow not point one percent, and you just add yeah. all these little add all these little wins on to it, all these sort of things outside your comfort zone. I'm a bit the opposite in the mountains when I'm go out because I go a lot of, on my own a lot, and I never I sort of have quite I'd say I'm I'm a bit on the the when it's getting a bit sketchy is kind of what I need because I'm a bit of a, not an adrenaline junkie at all, but I'm, I kind of like, I love that kind of side of it. So mm. I'm, more, I'm more nervous when I'm doing something like this. For example, this podcast way out of my comfort zone when yeah. I started with it, way out of it. And I was like, oh my God, how the hell am I ever going to get Wilco Van Royen on? You know, there's no yeah. chance, you know, he's, he's, he's been in a film, he's climbed the seven summits. He's done this and, and he's on episode eight, you know? Yes. And and you, when you, before you start, you think there's no chance, there's no chance.
0: And well, then like all of a say, sudden, you, know, you can't, you're not going to catch a wave if you're not in the ocean. You know, you need yeah. to, you need to be in it to catch one. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, and, 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 and little, little things come off, like off the back of the Wilco one. I've got another big one lined up, hopefully. So, it's like with yourself. You do one talk, somebody hears it, you get an offer to do another talk. You know, you talk. Somebody else hears that one, and then before you know it, you you're actually in the destination that you you manifested to be in. You know, and it, that's yeah. it, it's going out the front door. Get yourself out there. Feel nervous. Feel scared. No. Go and do it. Get home and have a beer it, at the end.
0: Fake, fake it till you become it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Learn, learn on the way. So. Stephen, it's been tremendous, mate. So I'm going to bid you farewell. Love to the family. Cheers, uh, good luck with everything. We'll stay in touch.
0: Yeah, have yeah. a good weekend. And I'm no doubt see you at another rugby thing anyway. So,
1: Yeah, you certainly will, mate. Thanks a lot.
0: Catch you later. Bye, mate.
1: Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Please like and subscribe on your podcast platform. It makes all the difference. And we'll see you on the next one. Bye.